From the New York City area, welcome to the Badass Counseling Show, where the master badass himself, Sven Erlinson, takes you deep and gives balm for the soul, baby. And we are in the house for a lightning round. Welcome to everyone joining us online and across the world. We have people checking in from all different countries from all around the United States, and it's great to have you here on the Badass Counseling Show. I am Sven Erlinson. I've got my uh, lightning round master coordinator and technical guru, Rob. Say hello, Rob. Ready for a liftoff. Man, I've got Casey back in the booth, quiet as always, but good to have her running the show. And I'm taking your questions tonight. So to all of you there live coming at me, lay your questions on me. What have you been struggling with? This is from just a mom watching TikToks. I like that. What if they were uh, a habitual cheater, but then find Jesus and change? Um, well, first of all, someone doesn't need to find Jesus in order to change, but hey, if you found Jesus, that's great. My first question is, when did they change? How long has it been since they changed? And if it's been two months, if it's been nine months, if it's been a year and a quarter, I'm still wondering if it's real. But the truth is that stuff can stay latent and can stay hidden for a long time. But my real question is this, how have they changed? Have you literally seen a marked difference in how they approach life? Not just they're all roses and cotton candy and rainbows out their butthole, but that they're actually a, a qualitatively different person. If you have seen that, in all honesty, the question I hear you asking me is, should I get back into a relationship with this person? My first question is, one, um, it sounds like you want to. It sounds like a part of you wants to. And the only way you know whether or not you can trust someone, the only way you can definitively know whether or not you can trust someone is to trust them. And you trust them a little bit and you trust them a little bit more and a little bit more. But the real question that I have for you is this. You say they're a habitual cheater, which I hear you saying they've cheated on you multiple times in the past, multiple times. Now, did you find out all of those at once or did you find out after each one? And then my question becomes, if you found out after each one, how come you remained in a relationship with someone who cheated on you the first time, but then cheated on you a second time and potentially a third time? What If you were my client, my question I would be diving into is what the hell is going on inside of you that you stay with someone who continues to be so disrespectful of you? Now, clearly you want to stay in the relationship and clearly you're getting the story that they've changed. Um, this is almost one where I would have to be able to ask you more questions of what the hell is really going on inside of you. What is it that you're so afraid of that keeps you in a relationship? And I'm not blaming you. I'm doing just the opposite. I'm trying to help you understand what's keeping you in a relationship with someone who clearly has such little concern for your fucking feelings. And I do care about you. But uh, with, the, with regard to the change, just take it slowly and give yourself permission to walk away. And then in your own journaling, be sure to explore um, what's going, what it is you most fear happening if you were to walk away. Because the truth is, there is always the chance that this person could cheat on you again. Next question. Oh, I've got someone checking in here from South Africa. All right. Next question. How do I forgive my transgender father? Um, I'll be very honest with you. You don't say what your transgender father has done wrong. So it's hard for me to know what you're forgiving him for. What does your father being transgender uh, have to do with the question? Are you asking me how do you forgive your father for being transgender? 
um, then that opens up the question of what precisely is bad about that, et cetera, et cetera. But I guess, well, actually, there's one more question I would want to ask, and that is, why do you want to forgive? Because very often, and I just did a TikTok on this today. I haven't posted it yet. It'll post in the next couple of days. But the question becomes, um, what's the reason you want to forgive? Is it that you're wanting to restore the relationship? Whatever it is that your father did, is it that you're wanting to restore the relationship? And if so, that implies to me that you're wanting something from that relationship. In other words, you're not getting something from your father, but you're wanting something from him. And forgiveness is a tricky issue. Um, and part of the thing I also got to ask is, does your father want forgiveness? Does he acknowledge that he's done something wrong to you? And if so, why are you rendering forgiveness when someone's not even asking it? And so many people say, oh, you got to forgive for your own health and for your own healing. And I say, no, you don't. Forgiveness isn't the point. The point is you getting all of your pain and your authentic feelings out of you. Whether or not you forgive the person isn't the point. The point, because very often people will rush to forgiveness, but they'll pack down what their real feelings are. Forgiveness just serves to stuff that shit even deeper. And healing doesn't occur until you get the pain out of you. Because until it's out of you, it's it, until it's out of you, it's still in you. Unless it's out, it's still in. And so forgiveness, rushing to forgiveness is not the solution. Getting all of your feelings out, even if you don't ever express them to the person, you have to get them out of you. Next question. What do I do about finding hair that doesn't belong to me on my husband's clothes? Uh whew. That's a tough one, but uh, let me just ask you the question. The question I would ask you, first of all, is what do you want to do? Um, because it sounds like you want to confront him. You want to know the truth about what your husband's doing. And it's you can bet with reasonable certainty that your husband's going to deny everything about it. So then the question becomes, um, why are you staying with someone who has someone else's hair on his clothing? And... Finding hair. You didn't say finding a hair. You said finding hair. So that almost implies it's happened more than once. If it's happened more than once, then yeah, you've got a problem. But the bottom line is you have to confront your husband. You have to put it out there and assume that he's going to fucking lie to you. But watch his tics. Watch how he responds. If he responds cleanly with, oh, shit, you know what? You're right. I hugged the you know boss's wife. She was in the office. I gave her a big hug and said hello. If he's calm and just answers calmly with like no big deal and that it actually makes sense and so forth, probably not. There's probably nothing there. If he gets defensive or starts attacking you or deflecting the significance of it or anything like that, it's a tell. Denial is such a big fucking tell. Getting defensive is a fucking tell. He's fucking lying out his ass. Next question. Uh, this is from Hot Kiss 0707. If my partner was flirting with other people online, will it definitely lead to something physical? Um, well, Hot Kiss 0707, uh, let me ask you this question. Is it only cheating if it leads to something physical? In other words, are you okay with it if it doesn't lead to something physical? Because the bottom line, if somebody's flirting with someone online, they're fundamentally saying, fuck you to you. Unless it is within the contract of your relationship, unless it, that's acceptable. And you guys have talked about this. And, hey, I'm going to flirt with people online. You can flirt with people online. That's totally okay. No big deal. Then, then it's no big deal, right? Then it only is a crime if it leads to something physical or a significant emotional affair. Um, but the way you're asking the question is, if my partner was flirting with other people online, will it definitely lead to something physical? Definitely? No. Is there a likelihood that that's what your husband is pushing towards? Yes. And if your husband's denying it, he's fucking lying out his ass. Um, <laughs> but the bottom line is your husband is going outside of his marriage to get something. I, I would ask you the question, does it hurt? 
Does it hurt to know that your husband is flirting with people online? Does it hurt? And I'm willing to bet the answer is yes. Yet what's interesting is you are wondering if it's for sure going to lead to something physical. And that almost implies that you're only justified in feeling hurt if it does lead to something physical. And But the bottom line is, if it hurts what he's doing, it hurts. If it hurts, it hurts. That's the bottom line. And he is engaging in actions that, hurting, that are hurting you. But you could also be asking, will it absolutely lead to something physical? You could be asking that question because you've confronted it on him, likely caught him doing it. I'm guessing he was hiding that. He's probably not openly flirting with someone online and saying, hey, honey, I'm flirting with this woman over here online. He's probably not doing that right? You likely found it out. And he's denying that he ever had an in intention of it uh, becoming physical, right? So isn't that sort of what you're asking? But isn't the real truth that it hurts that he's even flirting at all online and it causes you to feel fear and distrust? That's the point. It doesn't have to lead to something physical. You fear it. It feels shitty. He's doing things that make you feel shitty. He's denying their significance. And you are believing that that's not reason enough to be pissed off or potentially leave. He's doing shit outside of a relationship. Do you think that's going to get smaller or do you think that's going to get larger? This shit doesn't magically heal itself. It's going to get fucking larger. Um, is it an absolute certainty? No, but if Vegas were giving me odds, I would bet my left testicle. All right, next question. All right, Spoiled78 asked the question, why do I continue to stay in a relationship and try to make it work when I know I shouldn't? Uh, we've all been there, Spoiled. We have all been there. Why do I continue to stay in a relationship and try to make it work when I know I shouldn't? In all likelihood, uh, it's fear. Fear of being alone if you walk away. And I don't mean being alone per se. I'm sure you can be in a room alone or be in your car alone or maybe you like a walk in the woods alone. I mean to not have someone in your life. And the reason we stay in a relationship and keep trying to make it work, keep trying to make it work is we're terrified of the thought of being alone, not having someone in my life. And very often it's not just because, gee, it's nice to have someone pouring love into my love cup, but because very often for someone who fears being alone, the reason they fear not having someone is because when I'm alone, all of those voices inside of me that were taught to me in my childhood, they all come rising up. Voice like, I see, you're no good. See, I'm not wantable. See, nobody loves me. See, I'm a piece of shit. But by having someone here, their mere presence is a counter message. I must have worth if this person wants to be with me. So once they leave, it's like, see, I don't have any worth. So it could be that you fear not having someone because that person's mere presence in your life, shitty as it may be, is confirmation of your worth. Or it could be that you're staying in a relationship and trying to make it work because you fear telling the person, you fear hurting their feelings. Or you maybe you fear just having to navigate sorting out your life on your own or you or something is keeping you or you fear judgment. You fear what people will say, what maybe a judgmental parent or what the, or the backlash of this person. But in all cases, if you're ever trying to figure out why someone's doing something that doesn't make sense, or why they aren't doing something and it doesn't make sense. Even if that person is you, always ask yourself the question, what's the primary fear driving the behavior? Speculate the answers and go with the biggest, hairiest, scariest one because that is what is driving you uh, to do that. Next question. He has had a lot of stress, but he takes it out on you and invalidates your feelings and needs. Um, my question is simply, why are you allowing someone in your life that takes their stress out on you and invalidates your feelings and needs? Uh, because you don't really ask a specific question. You say, he has had a lot of stress, but he takes it out on you and invalidates your feelings and needs. You don't really say what your question is. And so I guess my question to you is, why would you ever stay with someone who invalidates you and who takes out their shit on you? 
Furthermore, let me ask you this question. I'm going to assume you have, but have, uh, but I'll ask the question. Have you stood up to this person and says, and said, no, you can't treat me this way. No, this is not okay. No, I don't want this. Have you done that? And if you haven't, you have to. Because if you're not doing that, if you're not putting your truth out there and standing up for yourself, you are fundamentally teaching this person that this is okay to treat me this way. Am I blaming the victim? No, I'm just saying, I'm trying to empower the victim and saying, you need to stand up. And then, if you, and you likely have said that, hey, this doesn't feel good. Don't treat me that way. You can't do that to me. But if the person continues to do this, to invalidate your feelings and needs and take their stress out on you, they are fundamentally saying, fuck you. They're fundamentally saying your needs don't matter. I don't care. You exist to meet my needs. You, ex you exist to be my whipping boy. You exist to be whatever I want you to be, and you have to eat my shit. And the truth is you're allowing that. And I'm not trying to be a dick. I'm just saying you are. And now if you were my client, I would want to drill down to what the fear is that's driving the behavior. What is the real fear? And I just literally spoke about this a minute ago. What is the real fear driving you, causing you to stay in a relationship where you're getting your ass handed to you every day. And this person clearly knows they have power over you. They know they can get away with it because they continue to do it. Do you want to know why bullies bully? Bullies bully because they can. This person is bullying you because they can. And you're allowing it. And I'm not, again, I'm not blaming you. I'm trying to help you find your power to get the fuck out of this because this isn't love. There's no definition of love under which fits... Uh, the idea of someone taking their stress out on you, invalidating your feelings and invalidating your needs. That's not love. That's just bullshit. That's somebody being a fucking asshole. And I would encourage you to begin, if you haven't already, begin serious journaling and counseling to go into your shit so that you can finally stand up to this person and, and either insist that they're, insist, not just stand up, but stand up and don't sit down and insist that your needs get met or that you find the courage within you to walk away because this is not love and nobody deserves this shit. You deserve better and you will have better the more you begin to stand up for yourself. Next question. Why do I always cry when I'm arguing with my husband even though I don't want to cry? Um, to be very honest with you, crying is a natural response. It is a physical response to feelings inside. And many people cry. The obvious ones are when we're sad, right? I cry when I watch a sad movie. Hell, I'll see, I'll see a touching... I'll see a touching commercial and I'll start to tear up. I'm a sap. And you know what? I love it. I can be tough. I can be hard-nosed. I can be killer, all that shit. But I also like being soft. I just feel whatever I feel and that's okay. Some people respond with tears when they're happy. Ever had something like that? You're just so overwhelmed with happiness that you start to tear up, right? Those moments, you know, like the TikToks where they, we see the little kid and, you know, mommy comes back from the war and comes to her school and the daughter sees her and they have a big hug and everybody's so happy and everybody's crying and you cry up with tears because it's so happy, right? So we cry when we're sad. We cry when we're happy, but sometimes we also cry when we're anxious. Sometimes anxiety comes out as tears, that we're just so overwhelmed. It's not an indicator that we're sad and we don't even want to show it because it can appear to the other person as if it's weak and it's not necessarily weak. It's just an expression of anxiety. So you're crying because uh, in all likelihood, you said when you're arguing with your husband, so that's going to be a high anxiety time. Um, and so that's why you're doing it. And the truth is there's nothing wrong with it. The question is, does your husband pounce on that? Does he use that as leverage to make you feel bad? And if so, he's being a fucking dick. All right, but you need to be doing some journaling on uh, all the feelings of anxiety and journaling out all of those feelings of anxiety so that you're not feeling so overwhelmed in those arguing moments. Next question. 
I finally left my husband. Why is he calling crying now? He didn't care then. Why now? Oh, I love this question. This is great. <laughs> I finally left my husband. First of all, congratulations on doing that, which you clearly wanted to do. Congratulations doing something that innately requires courage. It requires courage to walk away from a dying or dead relationship or a relationship that no longer meets your needs. So I applaud you for that, all right? I finally left my husband. Now, why the fuck is he calling me crying? Now, he didn't care then. Well, isn't that interesting? And so you're saying he didn't care then. Why does he care now? He cares now because now there's a price. I get so many clients. I literally had two clients today um, and... Uh, who both are like, well, why won't my spouse change? In one case, it was a man saying about a woman, the other woman saying about a man. And why won't they change? Why won't they change? I want them to change. I keep wanting them to change. And I say, because there's no pain point. You're giving them everything. They don't have to fucking change. They, they can treat you like shit or they can have everything they want and they just fucking keep doing what they want because you don't stand up to them. There's no point, uh, pain point. There's no reason for them to change. They have the power. So why is your husband calling you and crying you to you now? This is, uh, she asked the question, what to do when my, excuse me, she asked the question, I finally left my husband. Why is he calling crying now? He didn't care then, why now? And I, I'm saying that the reason now is because he realizes he lost something. He didn't change then. He didn't give a shit then because he had it all. You were giving him everything. There was no pain. There was no incentive. There was no reason to change. But now there is. And so now he's sobbing, crying, big crocodile tears, trying to get you back. And who gives a shit at this point? It's like, dude, I told you all those times and you didn't fucking change. But I guess my question to you is why are you taking the calls? Why are you continuing to take calls? If you know he's going to be crying and he's going to be putting it on you and you don't want that, clearly you don't want that, I'm guessing, um, why do you keep taking the calls? Although it is interesting that you say, uh, why is he calling me now? You don't actually say, I don't want him to call me now. You're just trying to figure out why. And the reason is why is because you finally used your leverage. You finally used your power, stood up to him and said, fuck off, I'm out of here. That's why he's doing it now. And he's going to pretend that he's changing. He's going to give you every sob story in the book. But the truth is nobody changes that quickly. All right. We are going to take a break and I'm going to take more questions right after this. Much more to come right after this short break. Are you finally ready to turn your life around? Finally get the clarity, happiness, and sense of purpose you've been waiting for your whole life? Then go to BadassCounseling.com now and get the international best-selling book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup. It changed my life. It'll change yours. This show provides soul counseling intended to entertain and inform and is not medical advice. What's the badass got next? All right, we are back with a lightning round of badass counseling. Welcome to everyone. Good to have you back. I am taking listener questions and we're diving right back in. Another great episode. Thanks for everyone and your questions. Uh, Hot Kiss 0707 asks one more follow up question. I don't often do follow ups, but here we go. Is change even possible? Are they always crocodile tears? Are the tears ever genuine? Sure, they are genuine. 
No, I and I meant that somewhat mockingly uh, when I said that the person was crying, the husband, ex-husband was crying big crocodile tears. I meant more, they, I'm not necessarily saying they're fake. I'm just saying, who gives a shit? Fuck you, where were your fucking tears two years ago? Where were your fucking tears seven years ago when I was asking you to change, when I had needs? But now you want me to listen to your fucking needs because you're fucking crying. I've been crying for 10 years. I've been crying for 20 years in this fucking marriage. Where were you? Where was your fucking concern then? That's why I call them crocodile tears. It's like, fuck you. How, how much does a person have to do in a relationship to try to get the other person's attention and try to get them to change? And you're not going to change, but now I'm supposed to feel bad for you? Fuck that shit. And, but you asked the question, Hot Kiss 0707, is change even possible? You asked that question. And I say, absolutely change is possible. I, I build my entire practice. I build this podcast and my books. Everything is built upon my absolute belief that change is not only possible, but it's necessary for quality of life, quality of relationship. It's absolutely possible. But the sad part is, is so many people claim change far too soon. I know the rate at which most therapists work. And people are claiming change before most therapists would be able to affect that change. Or if a person is doing their own self-work, and I had to do my own self-work, I never found a therapist that really was able to help me any sort of long-term. So I do it myself. I know how long that takes. And someone who's claiming change six months later or a year later, it's like, fuck you, you haven't fucking changed. You're just scared. You're feeling very strong feelings. And I applaud you for finally feeling some fucking feelings because you didn't feel them when I was sad, when I was angry, when I was complaining in the relationship. But now you're feeling them. And I applaud you for that. But I have to move on with my life because I gave you time. I gave you time. I gave you time. Now, here's the other side of it. And I've done TikToks on this. When we stand up to someone, when we leave a relationship, sometimes we feel like they have changed or they're selling a good sale and we start buying what they're selling. And so we go back in. All right. Maybe we separated. Maybe we divorced. Maybe we just whatever. But we decided we're going to go back in because, you know, he's finally she's giving me attention. Finally, she's asking about my day. Finally, she cares. Finally, she wants to spend time with her. Okay, I'm going to go back in. And we go back in. And we see that their behaviors, they're up here, their surface behaviors have changed. And we stay in it and it feels good and it feels good. And what almost every time happens is they revert back to who they were. That once they get us back and sort of get us back in that power differential where they have the power over us and they're reverting back to who they were and getting their needs met with less and less concern about my needs, we begin to see, oh shit, they haven't changed. That the core beliefs way down here at the bottom, driving those behaviors haven't changed. And this is why I talk about change occurs over time because you have to change those core beliefs. It's not enough to change behaviors. You've heard me say it a million times. I've written about it in my book. I've said it on the podcast a million times. And that is trying to change behaviors never changes behaviors long-term. Until you change the core beliefs driving those behaviors, the behaviors changes aren't going to last. So you go back into the relationship, you're in it, you're in it, you're in it, and you realize, oh, fuck, they're just reverting back. Nothing changed. So then you get out. And then and they're like, no, 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 I have changed. I, I swear to God, I have changed. I have changed. I swear to God, I swear to God. And they sell and they sell and they sell. And because your heartstrings are being tugged and you feel, oh, well, I should give it a try because it may be real this time and you go back in. Do you know that I've had people who have told me, I've had clients, I had one client, actually more than one, but one sticks out in my head. Over the course of 15 years, it was a 20 or 25-year marriage. Over the course of 15 years, must have been a 25-year marriage. Over the course of 15 years, she went out and then back in. 13 times, 13 motherfucking times, all right? And I don't dog her for it. The heart has to do what the heart has to do. 
And there are deeper issues that can be addressed and, and that got to, got to go down to that and so forth. And she only came, knocked on my door in right around, I think, the 12th time that she went back in. Um, and we put a, a stop to that. But the bottom line is, yeah, sometimes we have to go back into it and we believe in the change, we believe in the change until you eventually realize there has been no change and nothing's changed, nothing's going to change. Um, and that's when we know we, can, we finally have the strength to move on. All right, next question. What do you got for me? How can I heal my inner child when my abuser is still a part of my family? Uh, that's a tricky one. The, let me ask you this. Are you still having interactions with your abuser? Are you able to lessen or, in fact, eliminate uh, your interactions with the abuser? And if so, you need to do that. Um, just because they're a part of your family doesn't mean you have to be a part of your family. And that's really the question you need to be asking is, do I want to be a part of this family anymore? Because it could be that the price of merely having them around uh, is too great a price to pay. Uh, but you have to protect your own sanity, your own worth, your own value above all else. This is a question that comes up, and I like dealing with this one openly. And this is from Bruce Moore, 84. He says, so do you have actually have any professional slash academic training? I love this question. Bruce, that's a fair question. I'm going to give you a straight-up answer. You can go and you can check out my bio at badasscounseling.com. I'm a former clergyman. I have... Uh, trauma counseling experience. I'm, I have pastoral counseling experience. I was a pastor off and on for 15 years. I've had a counseling practice in Manhattan uh, for la the last 10 years. I had a counseling practice in uh, California prior to that. Uh, so yes, I do. In pastoral counseling, co-counseling, peer counseling, trauma counseling, I was a, an emergency room chaplain at a level one trauma center, and I was the trauma counselor at a mid-sized uh, airline. So yes, I do, but feel free to check that out at badasscounseling.com on the bio page. I am not a psychologist. I've never claimed to be a psychologist. I, don't, I do not do psychological counseling. As I've told you all a million times before, I am a soul counselor and I deal with the deeper issues. Uh, psychology has been around for about 150 years and helps a lot of people. My work, spiritual counseling, soul counseling, has been around for about 4,000, 5,000 fucking years. Um, and that's the work that I do. So that said, next question. 23, reconnected with my mom who was physically abusive as a kid. I want to back off for now. How? Okay, uh, several things here. First of all, um, you're 23 and you reconnected with your mom. My first question would be, why did you reconnect with your mom? Not that it's bad. I'm just curious what the reason was. Was it at her prompting or your prompting? And the mere fact that you want to back off now and that you're not sure how says that you're feeling pressure now to stay in. If you... If you didn't feel that pressure, you'd just back off and it'd be no big deal. So that tells me you feel pressure to stay in it, which seems to indicate you probably felt some pressure to reconnect uh, with your mother, perhaps against your own gut, although I'm speculating there. Um, you reconnected with your mother um, who was physically abusive as your child. You need to know you are never under any obligation to reconnect with your mother. If your mother was physically abusive, verbally abusive, whatever, you are under no obligation. Don't let someone say to you, oh, it's your parent, fuck that shit then why didn't they act like a fucking parent? I'm not under no obligation to treat them like, quote unquote, a parent if they were so fucking hurtful in childhood. So uh, the fact that you want to back off for now, I applaud you 100%. And I encourage you when you're backing off, and I'll get to your question, I encourage you when you're backing off to be doing the inner work of your journaling or in your counseling to diving down deep. What the hell's going on inside of me? What am I really feeling? Have I truly gotten out of the vault of all of my feelings? Have I truly gotten out all of the hurt, all of the rage, anger, 
betrayal, disappointment, uh, disgust, whatever it is, you, whatever those deepest feelings are that you have towards your parents, parent, are you getting all of those out? And if not, why? You're afraid to get them out, afraid to feel them, afraid to admit the truth. What is that? But I would encourage you to do that in your own work. But I, but your question was, I want to back off from my mother who was physically abusive as a kid. We reconnected and now I want to back off. How? Um, well, it, the mere fact that you're wondering how says that uh, you somewhat fear either backlash or hurting her feelings, I'm guessing. And so what if you were to simply back off by saying, listen, this has been great, but I need to back off for now. And if the person pressures you, then you know you're not dealing with a good faith actor because they're trying to push their agenda, which in a way further strengthens your position that, oh, now I know why I want to back off and now I feel more justified because you're being a fucking dick. If it's truly a respectful person, if one of my kids ever wanted to back off from me, and my kids are in their late 20s, early 30s, if one of my kids ever wanted to back off from me, I'd say, okay, it's, I respect that 100%. If you ever want to talk about it, I'm here, all right? But to pressure the person is to force my agenda onto them. And so I would simply put your truth out there, and it requires the courage to do that. And no doubt if you fear doing that, uh, if you're reticent to do that, that says you have fear. And is it the fear of the backlash or fear of hurting their feelings? And if it's fear of backlash, then your fear of this person hurting you yet again is keeping you from protecting yourself. And I'm saying protect yourself. This is not a good faith actor. But if you're afraid of hurting this person's feelings, then you're fundamentally protecting the feelings of the very person who abused you as a kid. You are putting that person's feelings above your feelings. You're putting your mother's feelings above yours. If you're afraid of hurting her, it's like, really? You don't have to do that. Why would you want to protect the very person who hurt you most? That's not your obligation. She clearly has broken her obligation, broken her solemn oath, and you're under no obligation to protect hers. So just put your truth out there and then reinforce it. You know, block her number, don't take her calls, don't respond to her texts, or respond slower or respond fewer, uh, whatever it is. But you have every right to protect your boundaries and just put your truth out there and then hold strong and move on with your life. All right. After this short break, I'll continue to take you deep right here on the Badass Counseling Show. It took me to the place that scared me the most, the crap I've been running from my whole life, the stuff that's been dragging me down, and it literally began the healing I feel lighter, clearer, and just happier. Finally, some freaking peace. You got to get this book. There's a hole in my love cup. Or the do-it-yourself video courses. All at badasscounseling.com. It's totally killer stuff. Back with more to kick your ass. Here's Sven. And we are back in studio with the Badass Counseling Show. I am here with uh, my producers, Rob. Say hello, Rob. All's good, Sven. Rock on. He's the man. Good to have him here. He makes me sound uh, at least tolerable. We've also got KC back in the booth, the silent one, uh, taking questions in this lightning round. It's great to have everyone here, and I appreciate all your questions, and I'm getting a great mix today. So uh, the question being raised by Jazzy Fitz is, at what point should the obligation of till death do us part end? All right. Everybody's got a different take on this one. You know, you made that commitment. You made that commitment. You should stay in it forever, some people say. And uh, others say, no, nah, fuck that shit. And, you know, everybody's got a different feeling. Um, in the end, what I work, when I'm working with my clients, I always tell them, my goal is not to get you to hear my voice. My goal is to help you hear your voice. 
And what I mean by your voice is your own intuition, your inner uh, GPS system. But we can't hear our own voice, our own inner field, because so many other voices get packed in there. So many voices, particularly from our past. And if you were raised to not hear your own voice, to always be tuned into everyone else's feelings and your feelings don't matter, then when we get into adulthood, guess what you're going to have a problem doing? Tuning into your own feel, your own inner voice. And so the answer to when, at what point should the obligation of till death do us part end? It ends when your voice inside is saying, it's time to go, this is enough of this, it's been going on too long, this is enough, I need to go. But that will become corrupted if you have the voice of mom or if you have the voice of your brother, if you have society's voice or the voice of your husband or your mother-in-law, whatever voices are inside of you such that you can't hear your own voice. And so what I would recommend you do is pen and paper and just start journaling out all of your feelings and all of your thoughts and keep journaling, keep flushing, keep flushing it out. And the more and more, and identify, well, what are the voices that would criticize me if I did get out? That question alone right there, you will identify probably the primary actor or actors that you most fear in your life that are causing you to stay in. So let me ask you this question. The question that Jazzy Fitz asks is, is at what point should the obligation till death do us part end? My question is this. You wouldn't even be asking that question unless you were considering leaving, obviously. And so my question is this. In one sentence or less, what is the one sentence you most fear hearing, would be the hardest to hear, or would be the most painful to hear if you were to uh, get a divorce? What's the one sentence? I'm sure there are many, but what is the one that would hurt the very most or be the most difficult to hear? Okay. Now, if you got that sentence, then my question is, on top of that, who would it hurt the most to hear it from? Who do you fear the most saying that? Who would it be the hardest to know that that person thought that about you. That's the person that is keeping you in this marriage. Whether they're aware of it or not, that is the voice above all else that is keeping you in this marriage. So what you're basically saying is that person has power over you. You so fear likely their retribution or you fear their criticism that you are staying in a relationship that you clearly, uh, a significant part of you doesn't want to be in. Otherwise, you wouldn't even be asking the question. And one more piece on top of that. At what point should the obligation till death do us part end I answer it this way. Um, If you invest in a stock, all right, and let's just, I'm going to make one up. Let's say it's Apple. You buy stock in Apple. And let's say that stock is generally over time trending up. Now, it can have a bad week and dip, or it can have a bad month and dip hard, right? But overall, the general trajectory is it's trending up. Or if you have a stock that is generally trending down, it may have a great week. Now and then, it may have a really good day where it pops up, you know, seven points or whatever, but generally that stock is trending down. You divest yourself of that stock. You pull your money out. That's a bad fucking investment, all right? Obviously, unless you're shorting your stock, but can we please not go there? All right, so if the stock is trending down, it doesn't matter if it has the occasional bad day or bad month. If over the course of time, the trajectory of that stock is bad, you need to get the fuck out. Well, it's the same way with a marriage. If someone is hurtful, if they're not meeting your needs, if you've tried and tried and tried and tried and tried and tried and and it doesn't get better, that's when you give yourself permission. You give yourself permission because clearly you want to. Clearly you just want to be alive. You want a relationship that's fulfilling. All right, next question. Uh, Sandra Simpraga says, in response to that last question, I know some people who died inside but stayed in the marriage. That is no life. And I'll be very honest, my own personal bias is I agree with that. But we all make our own choices. Um, and in likelihood, if somebody's dying inside, they chose death, internal death, 
rather than getting out, they're living in an immense amount of fear. They're fearing someone, fearing family member, fearing church, fearing society, fearing their spouse. There's a massive amount of fear that could, would cause someone to do that. Um, oh, here's a great question. Boshti 2.0 says, is it possible to be comfortable in your own misery? If so, any tips to get out of it? Yes, it's possible to get uh, comfortable in your own misery, to get comfortable in the chaos. If you grew up around chaos or you surround yourself with chaos or you surround yourself with people's problems and you're constantly helping other people and you feel misery inside, and or, whether it's outside of you or inside of you, it is very possible to be comfortable in misery. And in part, because what it takes to change is going inside of it and looking at the, the origins of it and what it takes to change is oftentimes standing up and saying, no, I don't want this anymore. And likely if someone is not standing up and changing their life, it's because they fear backlash. And so the question becomes, you ask the question, is it possible to be comfortable in your own misery? And I say, oh, absolutely. And what's driving that comfort is fear, fear of changing it. It's not that you're comfortable in the misery, it's that you're terrified of stepping out of the misery. You're terrified of making change. Any tips to get out of it? Yeah, list the things that you're most afraid of. List, list the people that you're most afraid of. List the messages that you're most afraid of that keep you stuck in that misery uh, and fearful of making the change because until you can stand up to those voices and those people, you'll never change. It's fear that's keeping you in the misery. It's not comfort. It's fear of actually stepping out of it and what people will say. All right. If she gave herself permission, is it okay to cheat while I'm helping her family? <laughs> I look over at Rob, my producer here, and we're both like, I don't know if I know what that means. If she gave herself permission, did you write a, a message before that? If she gave herself permission, is it okay to cheat while I'm helping her family? Um, general answer to is it okay to cheat? The answer is no. So whatever preceded it or came after it, no, the answer is no. Um, because if someone's giving you permission to cheat, then it's not cheating by definition. Uh, cheating implies that it's surreptitious, that it's going against the rules. All right. Um, King of Sling, 1970, asks, why do families always choose their sisters and brother's side during a divorce? Well, first of all, I will say they don't always choose it. Um, I went into a... Uh, I've experienced relationships where they chose the spouse. Uh, but why do families always choose their sisters and brother's side? Uh, in part, because if someone's going to be leaving the family, you got to put the family back together. I'm guessing that's part of what's motivating it. And But also, if I'm choosing someone's side, it's possible I'm choosing their side because I fear them being mad at me if I don't choose their side. So if they're choosing a sister or brother's side, you know, the sister or brother's in divorce, why are they being more fair to that person than to that person's spouse? Um, in part, it could be, you know, you know, it's blood, it's family. In part, it could be they fear that spouse getting mad at them or calling them disloyal or betraying them. Uh, but yeah, divorces are just fucking ugly and it's not fair. And you don't always get the treatment you thought you had earned and that you think uh, you expect. And it sucks. And divorce just sucks. It just does. All right, next question. Give me something fresh here, guys. Does the anger from childhood trauma ever go away or do you just learn to cope with it? Honest, honest answer to that one, Emily, is that if you still have anger towards uh, people in your childhood, it's because you haven't gone down and found the real anger. You haven't gone down and found the real pain. Because once you begin to get that out, it flushes so much more quickly. So what's likely happening is there's a trickle. All your real authentic feelings and the real 
uh, deepest realizations are still in the vault, but there's a trickle, there's a hole somewhere in the vault. So you're getting a trickle of the anger, all right? Emily asked the question, does the anger from childhood trauma ever go away or do you just learn to cope with it? No, it can go away. It absolutely can go away. But if you're feeling anger, what that tells me, and anger is good, that's great. I'm all for that, right? Um, but if you're still feeling it after X amount of time, it's because you haven't drilled down to the real hurt because anger is generally a secondary emotion. It comes after hurt. Anger is a response to a perceived threat. It's a response to pain, either past pain, perceived present pain, or per, um perceive future pain. And so if you're feeling the anger, but haven't gotten down to the real hurt where the anger mixes with tears and holy shits and ahas and fucking a with deep, deep tears, then uh, it's not going to get out of you. And so it requires going deeper into that. And uh, I strongly recommend you use my book. There's a hole in my love cup because that's precisely what I made it for to take you down to the real deepest shit and finally get that shit out so that you're not burdened by anger your entire life. No, you don't have to carry childhood anger your entire life, but you do have to go down and get at the root of what's driving it. Otherwise, you're just packing your feelings down more. Next question. What to do if my dad is ruining his relationship with my siblings after my parents divorced? Thank you. Um, well, you can draw your atten his attention to it. Go to your dad and tell the truth. You feel your dad is ruining your, his relationship with your siblings after the divorce. Go to him and tell him the truth and, and encourage him to change his actions. And then at that point, it's kind of out of your hands. There's really little you can do. But also, well, encourage your siblings to stand up for themselves and say to their father what needs uh, they have and uh, they need him to change. They need him to meet their needs. Um, the one thing that happens very often in divorce is wounding and pain. Could be your father's in a lot of pain. I'm not excusing his treatment of your siblings. I'm simply giving a context that he can't see beyond his own fucking face because he's got so much pain of his own. So you can also encourage your father to get his pain out, to go to counseling or to be, uh, to be journaling, to flush out, flush out, flush out his pain. Because if he's not being a good father, it's either the present pain of the divorce or past pain. That does not excuse how he's treating your siblings, but it needs to change if he's going to change his parenting. Um, how long after a separation should you start dating if they've moved on? Uh, he left after 21 years. Um, how long after a separation should you start dating? There's no should. Let me ask you this question. First of all, when do you want to start dating? It sounds almost, it sounds like a part of you wants to start dating. So start dating. But my question to you would be just in the interest of ensuring better relationships in the future, have you gone inside and flushed out all of your own pain and identified the origins of your hurt and your anger? And have you flushed it all out? And also the core beliefs that were driving you going into that 21 year marriage, the core beliefs from your own childhood, because unless the core beliefs, the fears and the pain are out of you, then you're carrying the exact same shit from your last relationship into your new relationship. So for your own sake, uh, going to that. Again, that's the book is for. Um, all right. Would numbness, uh, Emma Honey says, would numbness be associated with anger? Um, in all honesty, uh, if someone is numb and they're not feeling their feelings, it would actually be associated with not feeling the anger. It would be what I would associate that with or what uh, generally if I have to puncture that, it's because someone can't bear to feel their real feelings. So it's pain and sadness and anger are the, usually the two whoppers. If someone is feeling numbness, it's just like either they became so overwhelmed that they basically had to shut down and not allow themselves to feel anymore or they're terrified of allowing it out uh, for fear that it would overwhelm them. All right, next question. Uh, Adrian asked this question, what do you do if your parents are dead and your issues stem from childhood? How to get close, uh, closer, but I'm guessing you mean closure. 
Yeah, and this is a thing, you guys. You really got to understand that for those of you who are avoiding dealing with your parental issues, you don't ever have to confront your parent. I always tell my clients, I can heal you without you ever confronting your parents. If there's childhood shit, all right? I mean, if you want to, you can. I recommend you do it after we do our work together. But the bottom line is I tell, I tell people, do it when they're alive. Even if you never confront your parents, do your childhood shit while your parents are alive. Why? Because that's, that shit hardens. It calcifies once the parents die. It, you, we begin to romanticize parents. We nostalgicize them when we say, oh, it's not right to speak ill of the dead. We be, very often become more reluctant to look at the deepest truths when the parents are dead. For some people, it's the opposite. But for a great many people, um, it's harder uh, after they've passed away. And you're asking the question, uh, my parents are dead. How do I address the issues from childhood? It's really no different than if they were alive. You go into it, you begin to explore it, you begin to do the journaling and dive down deep into what the messages were and you begin by identifying, go back and identifying any memories that you have that have emotional charges attached to them. Then you have to go into those memories and begin to decharge them. Again, this is what I talk about in the book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup. Um, all right, I'm gonna take one more question here before I sew it up. How do you handle self-hatred when it comes from your loving parents' comments through childhood? Oof. You know, I, I actually love this question. This is from C.K. Dumpack. And uh, C.K. asks, how do you handle self-hatred when it comes from your loving parents' comments through childhood? Part of what I love about this is, as you guys know, before I take on a new client, I require every new client to... Um, uh, write an autobiography for me. And very often what I get in that autobiography is I get people saying, I had a great childhood. It was idyllic. It was, I had, it was fucking Norman Rockwell, man. We had, I had a great childhood. Everything was great. I got positive messages. And I don't have to go far before I puncture that veil because you wouldn't be knocking on my fucking door if you had a great fucking childhood. And that's just how I look at life. And usually, usually 99.9% .9 of the time I puncture the veil, I get down to it and we realize, oh, there's more shit there. Well, uh, what this particular, what CK is asking me here is how do you handle the self-hatred when it comes from your loving parents' comments through your childhood? So CK has already punctured the veil. He realized that even though I had loving parents, I got a bunch of negative uh, messaging uh, through my childhood. So how do you handle it? And it's basically the same thing that I've been saying up to this point with a few others, CK, and that is that you have to go into that messaging. You have to start journaling, start in counseling, writing letters, and you start with what you're feeling. What are you feeling towards your parents? You have to go down deep into those feelings. You have to identify the origins. One of the chapters I have in my book is on, actually it's a one, two, three chapters I have on messages. It's so powerful and so necessary to identify the specific messages we got from parents and not just the explicit ones, but the implicit ones through a look, through a, sense, a shaking of the head, through um, a, a sigh, through a laugh, through an undermining, through whatever it might be, messages get conveyed to you about your worth. But you didn't just talk, oh, gee, I don't feel good about myself. You talk about self-hatred. And you ask, how do you handle it? You don't handle it, you heal it. And the way you heal it is by going into it, identifying the messages, going through all your memories that have any sort of emotional charge and then welcoming those memories up and welcoming the emotional charge. So identify every single memory you have with your parents. And this you can be doing in journaling, listening, bullet pointing every single memory you have of your parents conveying negative messaging to you. And then from each of those bullet points, adding each of the feelings that you have that you feel towards it. You can journal then about that. Or one of the books I talk about in my book, uh, it's called the Sedona Method, which is a great tool. And there are other ones out there, but I'm a big believer in this one. I've used it on myself. 
I still use it every single day. I recommend it to clients. And it's a method for decharging memory sooner. Sedona method won't help you to identify the core beliefs you've been taught about yourself, the core messaging. There's a lot it doesn't do, but one of the things it does do, it accelerates the process of decharging memories that have emotional charges attached to them. But you have to go deep into that. And CK, I'm telling you as fact, how do you handle self-hatred when it comes from loving parents, shit uh, from your childhood? You go into it and you can heal from this and you can move on. All right, one last question. I know I said that was the last one. I'm gonna take one more, just one more. Um, uh, Suffering guilt and shame from being the other woman, getting pregnant and aborting. Wow, wow. Wow. First of all, please let me be the first one to say I'm so sorry for all the pain that you're uh, going through. I have to believe uh, the the guilt over being the mistress, getting pregnant, and the abortion. Um, the just the guilt over the abortion alone must be significant, and and I'm so sorry for what you're going through. And uh, but focusing on the shame and guilt that you feel over being the other woman, how do you, you ask the question? Um, Basically, what do you do with that? I hear you asking the question, what do you do? And as with any guilt, as with any shame for the things that we do in life, you begin flushing it out of you. Keeping it inside, letting it tumble and tumble and tumble and tumble around in your fucking head doesn't solve anything. You have to start putting pen to paper. You have to start sharing it with a therapist. You have to, as the Sedona method I just mentioned, you have to begin identifying all your feelings, allowing yourself to feel it, but keep flushing it out, keep flushing it out. You also have to keep identifying the messages that go along with it. When you feel that guilt, what is the antagonistic sentence that you hear in your head? Is it, I'm a piece of shit? Is it, you know... I'm, I'm, I'm the other woman and that's bad. Or what are the messages you hear in your voice? Begin to flush those out of you and keep flushing it and keep flushing because until the pain is out of you, it's still in you, but you can flush it out till eventually it goes away. But you have to have the courage to face those feelings, to allow the feelings and the messages that go with them to come up and to come out of you. Thank you so much for your questions. Thanks to Rob. Thanks to KC. And you all have a kick-ass fucking day. The Badass Counseling Show is strictly copyrighted. No copies may be made without the express written consent of The Badass Counseling Show, LLC. The Badass Counseling Show is produced by Karen Camparelli and Robert H. Friedman. Executive producer, Sven Erlinson. Original music by Trevor Morris. Have a kick-ass day.